Hello and welcome to New Time Religion, a podcast featuring Dr. Andy Root with me, Derek Tronscard. Well, we're excited to be back after a bit of a break with some more episodes, some new episodes that we have coming up here. But before we start with all of that, a big shout out and thank you to everybody who has called in and left us questions on our New Time Religion hotline. Your questions have been wonderful and we'll have some new episodes coming soon featuring a lot of those listener questions in the coming weeks. And if you want to get in on the fun, you can give us a call on our hotline. That number is 651-800-1089. Again, that number is 651-800-1089. You can call us and leave your question, and maybe it'll be featured on a future episode. But as for today's episode, Andy and I got together not too long ago. We were socially distanced outside on picnic tables on the campus of Luther Seminary where Andy teaches. And I wanted him to talk about something that he touches on in his work, and that is the story of secularization, how we got here and, 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 and where we're going in today's secular world. Now, in his series of books on ministry in the secular age, Andy often refers to this idea of secular one and secular two and secular three. Now, this is something that the philosopher and social theorist Charles Taylor first points out, and the basic premise is that over the centuries, Western society has gone through this process of moving through these periods of secularization. First, secular zero, then secular one, then secular two, and now today, here we are in secular three, and they keep building on top of each other. And it's this really interesting idea. It's a really fascinating story, and it has some huge ramifications for those of us doing ministry today. And so for today's episode, we're going to look at what this all means, how we got to where we are, and where we go from here. And so, without further ado, here's another round of New Time Religion. I know we've talked about this on the podcast a little bit before, at least we've mentioned it in passing, and reading through your Secular Age books, it's probably one of the most fascinating stories to me. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by Secular 1, 2, and 3, and how a lot of times we're living in one of those and we maybe don't even realize it? Yeah, it's interesting how they how they work. Um, so two things to say before I launch into talking about that is, is, is one, to say that... Um, they're, they're, they function kind of in a weird way because once they arrive in a society, they stay in a society, kind of. Um, so it is a de- it's a developmental kind of conversation. Like a society could be at secular one, it could be at secular two, it could be at secular three. But once it's there, then it keeps reverberating in some sense, if that, if that, makes, if that makes sense. So it's not like you move from one to three. No. It's, it's still like a part of the overall Absolutely. structure. It just keeps right. building on top of yeah, it. Yeah, I'm trying to think of an analogy. I can't right now. But, you know, yeah, it's like, it, I guess it's, I think this is right. I may be using this wrong, but it's epigenetic in the sense like it's still in you. You know what I mean? Like once uh, once you have developed something organically, like that something kind of stays with you. Like, you know what I mean? It's like the guy who invented pizza and then one day decided to put pepperoni on top. They still had the cheese That's on there. That's right, yes. I and guess. then when his buddy was like, hey, let's throw some <laughs> mushrooms on there, too, you still had the pepperoni and the cheese. Yeah, yeah. I, that's that's the way to go, I guess. Is it? And, I don't, I'm, it I'm really Until some that, yeah. insane person, you know, first of all, puts pineapple on it. How dare you? What did you say? Epidemic? No, not Ep- epidemic. I think, I'm, I don't even know if I'm using this right, but epigenetic. Epigenetic. And I'm, yeah, you may have to edit all so that So the, the creation of pizza... Idiot. 
and the secular I don't know age. That, I don't think you can say a pizza is epigenetic, but okay. uh, it's kind of like when a developmental structure arrives, that developmental structure stays. So like when you're a child and you realize that there's such a thing as like object permanence, you know, like when you when you push your cup off the plate and you realize, oh, it's actually down there. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. When peekaboo but, no longer works. Right. Yes. That, then when peekaboo no longer works. That stays, you, you always have object permanence, you know, unless you have some kind of traumatic brain issue. But developmentally, it's always there. All right, so that's a long way of saying that this secular one, two, and three is kind of like that. So it arrives um, and then stays. The other thing I'm going to, I just want to preface is that uh, it took me a while to get a handle on these, actually. In some of the second source stuff around Taylor's uh, secular one, two, and three, it gets really blurry. And part of the reason it's blurry is because you have a secular zero. So like when I do presentations on this, I always talk about secular zero. And secular zero is a world without any kind of secular, like a world where there is no secular. So you're, you are talking like, um, you know, like France in the 14th, 15th, 16th century. You know, there's no secular. Like uh, everything is just fully enchanted. There's like a supernatural, like explanation for every phenomenon in the world is that kind of what you're yeah, saying yeah and, and even more so it means like the institutions the larger institutions and their connection to either religious forms or they're or they're they're connected to like religious sensibilities or they are like connected to the religious institutions you know like so there's just you, you couldn't think like um like even even watching Victoria, which we're talking 19th century, so we're starting to get other seculars arriving. But there's a sense with with the ancient regime and with the world of kings and queens that they, if they, you couldn't have a king who didn't believe, or you know, you, that would be a problem. You know, they were in some ways, well, they they sat in in um, ruled their domain as God ruled the heavens. They were a direct reflection of it. So. Uh, you couldn't imagine that. Is it like the idea of a separation of church and state? Well, just that, like would not compute because it, it was would just not so, compute in any way. So this yeah. is, this is a good. That's a really good segue into thinking about secular one, two, and three. Is that secular one is the arrival of this distinction between what's public and what's private, and that religion becomes lodged in the private sphere, and so now you don't. You could be a politician now and not have to be. A believer, like the fact that even we can now say, like, I don't, you know, whichever congressman or congresswoman I'm going to vote for, I don't care where they go to church. I just care that they understand the issues in that um, that I agree with their platform. That's what matters to me. Like the fact that you can say that says that you're a secular person. So one of the really interesting ways to think about this as we try to tease it out is that America is a weird country. In America, you can make an argument that America is the most secular country of all the Western countries. Now, some people will stop their phone and rewind and have to hear that again, but it's true that America is the most secular of all the Western countries, but only if you stop at a secular one perspective like it is so deep within the american consciousness because it's so deep within the constitution and the way our laws have been written that we believe in this really strong firm line between separation of church and state and those who do youth ministry know this well like it's always an issue if you want to get on a high school campus here where even in, like in the in the uk and other places uh you have religious formation religious education that even happens 
inside 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 the school inside public schools or you know inside the way the school system works there and so it just but that can never even happen we don't even know if we can do an after school club in some communities um here you can but like if it, i go have lunch with my students i'm looking over my shoulder to see like if i'm gonna get kicked right, out or something and, yeah and the principal's wondering is he could even go to your church and the principal's wondering am i gonna get in trouble from the superintendent because i have this christian pastor on on my campus and the superintendent's wondering is he going to get be able to get reelected if all of a sudden finds out he's bringing in um religious people in into the church now in some communities it doesn't matter and some it really does so that's secular one and it does have a period you know it is a kind of sense of the the, the great revolutions both the french and the american revolution bring this reality that you could actually live without a king or a queen, and that you could then separate. Um, and you, it, it, ha, it has a lot to do with you have to have an enlightenment and, a, and a, like a rational structures that can organize institutional life, and you don't just need um, kind of spiritual forms and religious forms to do it. So that's secular one. So secular one was like separation of church and state, public establishment of a democracy where you could conceptualize church and state being two different things and having a personal and, and public life. Yeah, I think at its most fundamental, it gets worked out exactly how you said, but at its most fundamental is just the separation, that there becomes a separation between the public and the private. Again, I think maybe the interesting thing is to think secular one, America is the most secular of all the countries. But this is what's interesting as this moves, is that if America is the most secular one of all the countries, and you could say like England and the Scandinavian countries are the least, um, because they still even have some kind of remembrance of the ancient regime. You know what I mean? Like some of them still have uh, a king and a queen, um, and they still have the royals. Uh, walking around and there's a state church right and there yeah in most of those places there's there's a state church so that you can already see there's not as strong of a, a divide so if you wanted to say america was the most secular one country what you would say then is the the fact that it was the most secular one allowed for religion in america almost from its beginning in, in um Tocqueville, the great uh, French kind of social theorist who travels America in the mid-19th century and writes his book about America, almost points to this, that in America, religion has always been a free market. It's always been almost laissez-faire. Like, it's it's always been open for innovations to, to, to grab market share. You know, it always has. So what that's led to is a lot of, for good and for really, really weird, American religious experiments but that meant and has meant that while America is the most secular one country, it's the least secular two country. It, we, on all kind of empirical, on all empirical measures, we have more people identifying as going to church um, than any other. Like they, they do these, um, when they ask people, they do two ways that they can kind of discern this is one is they, you know, call you up or ask you social scientists do if you go to church and the other is they ask people to do um like time journals you know so like you fill out like what did you do these this at this time this this day and what they discovered by looking at both of those uh both of those instruments is that americans and europeans both lie about religious involvement they both completely lie 
Um, they over they overinflate their answers can all the I, time. Can I guess what they found? Yeah, little, little game. I would imagine the Americans said that they went to church, and then when they actually looked at the time journals, they didn't go to church. Europeans said that they didn't go to church, but then the Europeans actually did more like religious praying and worshiping and that kind of stuff. They actually went to church more than they said they did. Okay. So so Americans always oversold how much they went to church. Yeah. And Europeans always undersold. You know. So when, when a social scientists would ask you, and why I brought up the why I brought up the time journals is because they could kind of verify this and look at this. So they'd ask them, you know, did you go to church this week? And if you're an American, you're like, oh yeah. Or they would ask, you know, how many times this month did you go to church? Oh, it must have been with three. We went to three. Yeah. We went yeah. church three times for sure, three times. Well, they look at the time journal and it's like. What two, did you do Sunday? I woke up, <laughs> right. watched football. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were traveling or whatever. And so it would be far less than they'd say. You'd ask Europeans, like, how many times did you go to church this month? Oh, I don't think we went to church. No, no, we don't have time for that. No, no, no. I could never do that. No, we, we, we don't do that. And then they look at their time journals and they went once or twice. You know, they always lied. And that just kind of shows this, like, in the American consciousness, going to church is something you do or it has, like, higher value. And so that's always made America a winner in Secular 2 because Secular 2 is defined as um, fewer and fewer people going to church. So America's always been a land where a lot of people go to church or to choose out of their own free will individualism, which is part of the problem, um, have chosen to go to church. Now, one of the interesting things about that is well there's two things that are interesting is one is that because america has been the most secular one it's been the, the least secular too as i've said but it's worked just the opposite way with the european and scandinavian countries because they're the least secular one they're the most secular too they have actually the fewest people um well you know are on the list of, of fewest people going um to church so you know there's other other realities at play in that but um I think that's interesting. But the the other interesting piece, really, for people listening to this podcast, is it's meant in America there's always been a crisis. And part of that is just Protestantism. Like, to be a Protestant, there's always a crisis going on. At the very least, the crisis of you being a sinful being and you needing God's act to justify you in some way. So, you know, crisis is deep within our bones. But in America, the crisis has not been um, theological. The crisis has been... Um, ecclesial like functionally ecclesial in the sense of if we don't do something different if we don't find a new way people aren't going to come anymore like we're in a we're in a competitive market this is why Bonhoeffer called America in 30 what in 39 I think he wrote this essay called America he, the, the big takeaway was that America is a land of Protestantism without Reformation and this is exactly what he meant. Like, it's not a theological crisis that drives us, that drove the Reformation or, and drives the American consciousness. What drives the American consciousness is the crisis of, oh, shit. Like, if we, if we don't get our preaching up, like, people are just going to walk. And they're going to walk over to that church. You know what I mean? And, like, we don't even, like, talk about this much. But for the most part, like, if you're going to— People are going to hate me for saying this, but if you're going to plant a church, like you're going to find your base by stealing people from other churches. That in their own free market decision on which church to go to, you're going to pull your base from that. And nobody wants that. And people are going to say, no, we're going to start a church really for unchurched people. But for the most part, a big core of it is going to be um, at least maybe a solid third of it that you're going to rest the, the new church on. is going to be people that you convince to come over because it seems more valuable to them.
So secular two, just to back yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, please. Secular two is just that understanding that like the pastor is the entrepreneur and all of the secular two is is the way most people think about. It. Fewer and fewer people are going to church. Right. There's just that 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 narrative out there of of shrinking, and then as the ministry professionals, you have to figure out a way to like buck that trend. Right. Right. Yeah. So the the, the biggest crisis you face is that fewer and fewer people are going to church. And the the ultimate goal is participation. Like getting people in the door. That. Yeah. That's when you start really putting an emphasis on like charting numbers right. and worship attendance and right. graphs and all that stuff. Yeah, like I mean a good example of this that I'm trying to use in a in a future book is to think about a church that becomes a pub. You know, like you'll see which which operative view of the secular someone has by how they how they interpret what happened with this church. So if someone says, see that? They turned this church into a pub. See, we just need laws that you can't turn sacred buildings into pubs. Oh, you mean the the church literally became a bar? Yeah, yeah. You know, like these churches are around. Like they go out of business and then they become like an event center or you yes. can get your wedding. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. okay. Or they become like, you know, I don't know. They become like a, a, a Applebee's chain yeah. or, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And so how people react to that. Like some people may say, oh, I just is so bad. Like we should have laws that keep sacred buildings from becoming places of commerce well that would be a secular one perspective or someone might say well i don't know about that i don't really think it's the government's job to care what happens as long as they're obeying the zoning laws sure it should be it's not really any of our business that's secular one too but right. then you could have someone who would look at that building and be like see this is what happens this is what happens when the church loses its mission and it can't relate to young people. They wouldn't stop playing organ music and yep. none of the kids wanted to come right. and then the church went out of business and now it's right. an apple piece. Or, or they had bad theology, they stopped caring about the Bible and now look what happens. Or yep. or they became, um, they refused to be politically progressive or whatever. I mean, you could read it anyway. Yeah. But there was some reason that everyone stopped choosing in their own individual choice to come to that and that's it. But that's a secular too kind yep. of definition. Yep. So what Taylor wants to say is those are all issues, man, and those are all real. Like remember this is epigenetic again. These are all in our DNA. These are all real things, but they're not what the development of the process of the West has led to. And this the kind of secular age that he thinks we're in, what's arrived, what we've developed to, and that shouldn't be taken as pejorative as good or bad, but it's just what's happened. Um, is that we've entered into secular three, which is probably a post-60s reality. Who knows? It comes it comes with force at different times. We may be in a moment right now where it's just going to hurtle even more so into a secular three because reality. Because of coronavirus. And because of coronavirus, because of important um, reckoning that's going on around, yep. uh, around um, injustice and things like that. Who knows? Maybe it will actually lead somewhere completely different. I don't know. But um, secular three then is defined as the fragilization of belief, that all belief becomes fragilized. So this becomes has a both kind of positive edge and a negative edge to it, or a positive thrust and a negative thrust to it. And the positive um, is, well, I mean, what happens within this is that you, you uh, start to realize that someone, I guess the positive edge is you realize that there are other people living good lives that are your neighbors who don't believe and they seem to be doing just fine. The negative edge is that even if you do believe and decide to believe, you're thrust into doubt at all times. Partly because of the positive edge. You're, you're aware like those people across the street don't believe anything or they're Buddhists or 
there um, were Buddhists and now there are some other form of Eastern or just uh, New Age spirituality, and they're actually a better parent than I am. You know what I mean? Like that, that thrusts you in um, into, into, into certain doubt. So you're out, your belief is always fragilized because you're aware you could be living another life and pretty easily. Like all of us, like here we are sitting outside because we're social distancing for this podcast at a seminary and um we're pretty committed like we're pretty committed to this uh, but and i've you know spent 15 years teaching at this seminary my whole life deeply connected to a church and i could ease pretty easily imagine like living life without any of it without any of it and that's sad man and and you know actually i try to give my kids speeches all the time about how important the church is in the sense of what it's given me what what it's actually offered me because i think so many of us because we can live in this fragilized age i have friends who actually the church did quite a bit for them and things haven't quite gone the way they wanted and they're like i'm done with the church church has done nothing for me i gave it everything it gave nothing to me which seems really odd um but it is a kind of reflex of being in a secular three kind of age where things just become fragilized um and yeah that i could spend all this time um, deeply, deeply invested in the church and its institutions, and will my kids have any relationship to it? I don't know, 50-50 at best. You know what I mean? Um, and that it's fragilized for them. So what do you think that does to somebody who's in ministry, their, their whole life, their whole calling, you know, their sense of identity, what they do? Is, is wrapped up in that, but then they're living in this secular three-time where all of that is, like, so fragile. Like, like what does that do to somebody? Yeah, like, particularly, like, maybe somebody in leadership or, as like, a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's hard. I think it's a really hard thing to hold because at one level, I, you know, I really do think it's kind of pastoral malpractice just to be flippant with that and just to kind of keep, I think it's, bad pastoral practice to know that people are fragile that they are their that their belief is fragile in the sense of it's like a it's like a piece of glass that's been hit by a baseball and it's it's like uh spider webbed and then just to come up and think your job is to come up with a hammer and break that thing through i i just think that's i think there's a, a way that uh you try to be an edgy pastor and do that and i just i don't think that that's a i don't think that's very valuable the other level, I don't think your job is to stand in front of that window and be like, uh, 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 blocking everything that that comes to. So, I think as I think we, I think a lot of pastors kind of live with this. It's an, it's in the background, this kind of background sense of fragilization everywhere. And I think part of the the struggle is that fragilization exists in you, and that can lead to certain um, interesting forms of practice too. You know, like so you'll see this amongst pastors where you have some. Like there, there's two divergent ways of dealing with that fragilization where you'll have some who see it as their job to protect doctrine, to protect belief, um, and to fight for belief and to knock down any argument that might throw another rock, even a little pebble, at that broken window. And then you have others who are just like, maybe none of this is true, man, and maybe this is a... Uh, uh. And to take those two, those two perspectives, you'll, you'll see it often if you, you spend time at you know pastor's conferences and sit-in meetings. You'll see those two kind of forms. And I'm not sure either is really the helpful way forward, to be honest, that there's some way that we have to, well, I mean, I think in many ways my whole project has been trying to say 
if we embrace this fragilization, what might we find inside of fragilization? How might we find God actually moving inside of fragilization itself? And so one of the reasons I'm so captivated by early the early Reformation thought that even goes beyond the early Reformation thought of just like the theology of the cross and um, that goes, you know, even into the German mystics and things like that is because of this sense of like that dwelling in the fragilization, if we want to call it that, that in the void, you actually find life. You don't find just an echo of nothingness. You don't find yourself free because you're defeated. Like, part of the defeatist perspective is if you look into the void, you'll find that there's nothing there. There's actually even no God, and now you realize that you're free. You know, like, that's the kind of Nietzschean... Um, Nihilistic sort of... Yeah, yeah. over Beckian kind of point of, like, and that's the good news. Like, the good news, it's almost like... the, the Pete Rollins kind of perspective too is that you look in and you realize there's no God there at all anyhow and now you're free. There's no man behind the curtain. There's no man. You're the man behind the curtain. Yeah, Yeah. right, right. You know, so that's like his thing that that Jesus actually kills God. That Jesus is the revealing that there's no God there at all and that's freedom in some way. It's not for me because uh, for me and and my own kind of theological imagination, Christology, there has to be an answer to death. There has to be an answer to fragilization. And that the human soul, the human spirit, yearns for communion and participation in something bigger. Something that um, stands over and against that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what's profound about the Christian story is that it's through those experiences that you're actually taken into participation, that you're taken into new life, that you're taken into communion, that uh, that death is overcome with life. So fragilization is nothing to be feared, but if it's just a void with no potential meaning inside of it, um, then what is it? But I do want to say that the only meaning that can be found is the meaning that God brings to it in God's own action and God's own working out of it. New Time Religion featuring Dr. Andy Root is produced by me, Derek Tronsgaard. You can check out Andy's latest book, The End of Youth Ministry, available now that touches on many of the themes that we talk about in the podcast. New Time Religion is a production of the Alter Guild Podcast Network, and you can check them out at alterguild.org. That's A-L-T-E-R guild.org for more great shows. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for another round of New Time Religion.